How We Got Here, Part 6, Coping Mechanisms. The country's airlines got a big bailout from Congress last month. $25 billion in federal grants and loans. Some of that money was supposed to pay pilots and flight attendants while hardly anyone is flying. But many people whose work is critical to the airline industry aren't seeing a dime of all that money. They're subcontractors, janitors, maintenance workers, and caterers. This is from a story I did at the beginning of the pandemic. It was about how airline workers weren't getting bailout money because they didn't work directly for airlines or airports. Airlines have been fissuring their workplaces since the late 1970s. And today, when you fly, many of the people doing things like cleaning your airplane, preparing your food, or doing security for the airline are actually working for subcontractors. My piece was a story of one of the subcontracted workers, Tony Vega. Like what I do, I, I put the, the food on the plate. So if you're putting, uh, let's say, uh, rice with vegetables and nice-looking salmon, then you got to throw some sauce on the top. How many meals do you think you've made in your life? That, you're talking about millions. Millions and millions of meals, all carefully arranged into their little containers with the sauce put on top just so. Here's the thing about Tony. He's been doing this work for a long, long time. Remind me, how long have you worked in this job? It was like over 30 years, right? 39. 39 years, wow. And after all that time and hard work, Tony is still in such a precarious position. What he's been through over the last four decades really sums up everything we've talked about in this series. First, he's in a fissured workplace. He's not working for an airline or the airport, but a subcontractor. Second, his benefits have been cut. Back when he started the job, he had great health insurance. It paid for everything. Now he has super high premiums. He also used to have two full weeks of paid sick leave. Today, he has just four days. The company can't even do the little things right to make Tony feel good at a place where he's worked for almost 40 years. I would say the last uh, 15 years or so, the company has been going very, very sour. When I completed 35 years, they didn't send me no letter like, thank you for your hard work and dedication for your 35, nothing. Really, really, I don't know. I call him cheap. Tony is lucky to still have a union. But even with a union helping him fight for raises, listen to what the owners at Gate Gourmet have been able to do to his pay over the years. Gate Gourmet employees are represented by Unite Here Local 2. But Vega, who's active in the union, says they often have to fight for over a year just to get a 25-cent raise. That feels like you're getting slapped. Slapped in the face. And it's like, take what I offer or, you know, if you don't like it, go somewhere else. After four decades of work, Vega's hardly making any more than when he first started. Back in 1991, he got $6.20 an hour. Adjusted for inflation, that's about $17.60 an hour today. Now he says his position makes 19 bucks an hour. So after all of those years of negotiations, picketing, of fighting, he's gained just $1.40 an hour. Just $1.40 an hour more than when he started almost 40 years ago. During all this time, Tony's living expenses keep going up. Rent in the Bay Area has increased. He has a family to provide for. So to survive, Tony has done what lots of people do. He's worked more and more and more hours. Tony says he was up to 50 or 60 a week before the pandemic. 
the only way I made it, I made it so far. I had to work so many hours. If I work uh, eight hours a day, I feel like I I didn't work on that day. That is the only way he's making it. He's working so much that eight hours a day doesn't feel like a full work day anymore. Tony's not alone. On average, we work more hours now than we did in the late 70s. And today, more than a third of all Americans work more than 45 hours a week. American society likes to romanticize working yourself to the bone. It's hustling or pulling yourselves up by your bootstraps. But what we're really talking about are coping mechanisms for workers who've had better options taken away. To walk us through these coping mechanisms is someone who's seen the great rift shift from a high vantage point, the White House. Robert Reich was labor secretary under Bill Clinton from 1993 to 1997. Now he's a professor at UC Berkeley. Robert says since the 70s, workers have piled on more and more coping mechanisms. He says there have been three big ones. The first uh, coping mechanism, if you want to call them coping mechanisms, that families used uh, when wages started to stagnate or decline was women moving in large numbers into paid work. Some of this was because women were winning the chance to work in the mainstream economy. But part of it was also just pressure on families to make enough money to survive. Now, this was something new, particularly for middle class and many working class women. Uh, poor women had been working right through. Uh, but starting in the late 70s and through the 80s, we had this huge wave of uh, women into the paid workforce. That first mechanism worked for a while. More and more households had two incomes instead of one. But the cost of raising a family, having a home, getting by in this country, they keep going up as wages stay flat. You get to a point of uh, just where it's no longer worth it, at which point uh, in the 1990s, the second coping mechanism kicked in, and that was everybody working longer hours. Uh, men and women, couples uh, of all sorts, everybody was working longer hours. People like Tony Vega. I had to work so many hours. But there are only so many hours in a week. And as business owners took more and more benefits and pay from workers, all those hours weren't enough. So Americans turned to their most valuable asset, if they were lucky enough to have one. The third coping mechanism, where the first two were exhausted, was using your houses, your homes, uh, as piggy banks. And Americans did this in large numbers in the early years of this century. Uh, between 2000 and 2008, uh, because housing prices were going up, everybody assumed they would continue to go up. They used their homes as collateral to get right. bank loans. Suddenly owning a home wasn't the end goal of the American dream. It was a way to borrow money. And that just added more risk to people's lives. You know how well that turned out. In 2008, when bankers imploded the financial system by gambling with mortgages, Millions of people lost their homes, and all the work and money that they put into getting a house was gone. This is going to be one of the watershed days in financial markets history. It was a manic Monday in the financial markets. The Dow tumbled more than 500 points after two pillars of the street tumbled over the weekend. Lehman Brothers, a 158-year-old firm, filed for bankruptcy. Robert says the financial crisis was a big awakening moment for the American public. The shocks of the crisis were so strong that it made people more willing to admit that our world of shareholder capitalism was systemically oppressing them 
and no matter how hard they worked, there was no way out. That is a hard, terrifying reality to swallow, and it spurred people to action. People took to the streets to protest, to protest income inequality, the privilege of the elite, the financial system. Occupy Wall Street was asking for radical change. The 99% and the 1% is controlling everything, financially everything, and that should not happen. These coping mechanisms that we've been talking about, they're a result of everything that has been taken away from workers. They are the attempts of people trying to solve the systemic problems all by themselves, which we're constantly being told can be done in America. So I asked Robert, why did the financial crisis change that? And why were more people protesting and demanding systemic change before 2008? Some of it was a lack of knowledge. Uh, the other is uh, ideology. Uh, that is, there is an American um, notion, a deeply ingrained, almost religious belief in the free market. And if the market says you're not worth as much as you thought you were, or your worth is actually not going up or it's going down, then uh, there must be something wrong with you rather than wrong with the system. But there was this third and important factor, and that is politics. Because you see, as wealth and income went to the top, you can't separate wealth from power. More and more money flooded into the federal government and into state governments basically lobbying and getting changes in the law and prohibiting, uh, stopping uh, changes from occurring that might help average people. I know, I was labor secretary in the 1990s. I saw it happen. An economic crisis like the pandemic is an opportunity for change. The pandemic is the fourth major economic crisis we've had in the last hundred years. After the Great Depression in the 1920s and 30s, we got labor protections, the New Deal, and welfare capitalism for mostly white unionized men. After the high inflation and high unemployment of the 1970s, we got an attack on workers, cutbacks to welfare, and Milton Friedman's world of shareholder capitalism. And after the Great Recession, well, there was a lot of talk of change, but millions of people still haven't recovered. Workers are increasingly isolated and disempowered shareholder capitalism still reigns, and income inequality has actually gone up since 2008. With the 2020 global health pandemic, inequality is on the rise, and workers are taking a much bigger hit than shareholders. When people don't have other ways to get basic needs met, even when they're doing everything that they can, they turn to a coping mechanism that limits their future options even more, that increases pressure on them and increases risk. I'm talking about debt. You're essentially debt financing basic needs, right? It's not like you're debt financing televisions. It's not like you're debt financing, you know, your third house. Next time, how debt traps workers in a vicious cycle with no way out. How We Got Here is made by Alan Montecilio, Chris Hoff, and Sam Harnett. In 1981, Studs Terkel interviewed a guy who had a job that Studs says he'd missed for his book entitled Working. This is an excerpt from that interview. 
In talking to people for my book, Working, I neglected to interview one kind of professional, the air traffic controller. And I thought perhaps we talked to an air traffic controller who's been fired. And to have him describe his day, what is the nature of the work, uh, the history of the situation that led up to the strike and the lockout and the firing. His name is Jim Pauley. You know, as we begin talking, Jim, I notice that you've been drinking so far about two, three cups of black coffee. Is it always black coffee? Always black. I, uh, I drink about 10 to 20, 30 cups of coffee a day. What about your colleagues? Uh, most of us drink black coffee. Uh, some put some cream in it, and there's a few who have been on doctor's advice now that they no longer drink coffee. But well, Why do you drink that many a day? I don't know. I just uh, keep the energy levels up, the adrenaline pumping. Suppose you begin your life as an air traffic control. Why don't you start? Start. What's your day like when you were working? The normal schedule is to work four to midnight, and let's start it out on uh, Sunday. You go to work four to midnight on Sunday. How many hours a week? Forty hours Four plus hours. overtime. Plus overtime. Now, suppose I say to you, I'll be the devil's advocate. Okay. 40 hour a week. That's a normal work week. What's your beef? Because one of, one of the things during the strike, you raised the question of a shorter work week. Right. Well, we don't feel that working the 40 hour work week, we have enough time away from the job. If, if you look at the schedule I just described, you leave work at 11 o'clock at night, probably anywhere from 15 minutes to a half hour drive home sit down and you can't go to sleep right away because the tensions have built up through the shifts so you're probably up until one o'clock in the morning. Now we know that many uh, working people have tensions. The truck driver certainly does. Well for that matter the typist does. What is it about the tensions? What's the word tension? Tensions of an air traffic controller. It's the instantaneous decisions that have to be right. You can never be wrong because when you're wrong you're going to kill somebody. The area that I work in particular, the aircraft are moving at 600 miles an hour. So that means they're going to cover 10 miles in less than a minute. You have to make a decision. You have to make it right. You don't have time to do it a second time. It does, after you get home, in my home, whenever I got home from a day shift or whatever, everybody just leaves me alone for at least an hour. And I just sit down, lay down on a couch, try to get collect it back together and get back to some semblance of normality again. Jim Pauley, thank you very much for, for offering us a picture, a portrait of a day in the life of an air traffic controller. Thank you for having me.